Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ plus ministry in the United Church of Christ. I wanted to remind all of you about the Encuentros Latinx pastoral coaching program. It's open to all UCC clergy or leaders in discernment. You'll get matched with a coach and offered five free sessions. Email Rina Ramos at R-A-M-O-S-R at UCC.org for more info. In exciting literary news for me, I recently had a flash fiction fantasy piece published in this year's anthology from Queer Sci-Fi. The anthology is called Ink, and you can find it just about everywhere online. It's a collection of over 100 science fiction or fantasy stories that are all 300 words or less. So definitely check that out if you're looking for some quick speculative fiction reads. And now on to my guest for today, La Muna. Those of you who are at General Synod may remember her song, Rooted in Your Love. I got a chance to catch up with her, and she shares wonderful experiences of her family's coffee farm in Colombia, the Trinitarian nature of her relationship with God, and how her activism has shaped her music. Let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Can you introduce us by giving us your name and pronouns? Yeah, my name is Lamuna, um, uh, she, her, and it's my pleasure to be here on Latinx. Wonderful, wonderful. And what country or countries do you and your family come from? Um, my dad is from a small town in Colombia, and my mom is from Ohio. The land of Ohio. <laughs> the, the land of Ohio. Of Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. Um, and it's it's great to have folks from many different areas in Latin America because on this podcast, there tend to be a lot of Puerto Ricans. And that's not always intentional on my part. So I always am very excited to have, you know, some other representation on here. Oh, that's um, so great. So I have, to, I have to ask, maybe I should, yeah. well, where is your family from, Taylor? Well, uh, my so my mother is uh, Puerto Rican and my father is from southern states in the U.S. Actually, his family was a military family. And so they actually did move around the country quite a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, that's my uh, my mixture. The, mm-hmm. I have Puerto Rico and I have the land of southern <laughs> states. <laughs> the country of the south. Yes, the, yeah. the country of the south. Now that, yeah. <laughs> So what is a good memory that you have about, you know, about Colombia or Ohio or, you know, any, any place that you spent your time growing up? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I consider myself very fortunate because my, my parents met in the U.S. in New York. My dad was a student. Um, and so I, 
I lived my first four years of life actually in Canada because my dad was studying there. But um, like many graduate students uh, in those years, their kind of his obligation was to go back home to Colombia and be a professor there. So my dad moved the family to Colombia when I was about four. And so I lived in Colombia between the ages of four and 15. Um, and, you know, being a kid in Colombia was, was great because I lived in a, a small city and my parents bought a coffee farm. So, you know, my memories of being a kid just was like being out somewhere on some mountain, you know, my, my best friend, her parents had a big house out in the countryside and we could see uh, the central Andes from her house. And I, I think as kids, we always thought we would get over the Andes. Like someday we were just going to walk over the Andes and have like a picnic on the other side and come back in the evening. Uh, and so we were always like, we were always outside, you know, running around, climbing on trees, picking coffee and with very little adult supervision, which was great. I think that, you know, it was it was it was a it was a great way to be a kid. Yeah, living in a mountainous landscape. I mean, I'm sure that was wonderful. And you know, I think of the mountains in Puerto Rico in the central part of of the island, where I my family's roots go back pretty far um, in that area. And you know, it, it is such a different energy in those kinds of communities. It's very, time doesn't move as fast as it does in cities. And it's just, you're surrounded by all of this beautiful nature and everything like that. So uh, it it sounds like you had a lot of fun as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I was, yeah, I think I was lucky. Um, We had just a lot of, we had a lot of space to roam and to run around and I I just you know being a kid in the city is so different so I think I don't know yeah I think back on being a kid and I'm so grateful that my dad decided to move us back to Colombia and have us grow up there Hmm. yeah and, and a coffee farm so then when you know when you're at the grocery store when people are at the grocery store and they see Colombian coffee do you know sort of where your coffee products went? Did you have any sense of that as a kid? So as a kid, when I was about eight years old, my my parents purchased this coffee farm that belonged actually to my best friend's parents. And they were biologists. So they just had this seven acres of coffee that was more like a forest Mm because they were more interested in the trees and the birds and the coffee, really. So when we were kids, you know, there was always, they were always picking coffee and they were always, you know, uh, packaging and selling it. But in Colombia, everybody sells to the National Federation, La Cooperativa mm-hmm. Nacional de Cafeteros, which is very unusual. And I don't know if there's any other country in the world that does it, that has a centralized buying and selling coffee system. So all of the farmers take their their coffee to like a place in town and the place in town takes that and joins it with all the coffee in the country and sends it out and negotiates Mm -hmm. the price to send it out internationally. So when we were kids, you know, sometimes my dad would 
put the coffee in the car and take it into town and sell it, you know. But mm-hmm. that's changed actually a lot because more and more farmers are trying to get their product into the consumer's hands and avoiding going in through the international market. And my sister lives on the coffee farm now, and that's what she's doing. She's growing coffee. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Coffee. Yeah, that that's great. And and yeah, because there are so many justice issues regarding, I mean, coffee production, but also, you know, production of all kinds of, of foods. And so um, do you think that's a change for the better? Like what what's going on now versus maybe when you were growing up or are things still, you know, not great with that? Well, the the 70s had what Colombia called La Bonanza Cafetera. And so the price of coffee was good. The government negotiated a good price for it. There was a good, there was a, there was a lot of coffee being produced and the people that produced it made very good, could make a really good living. So my grandfather would buy and sell coffee and he had 12 kids and all of his kids mm-hmm. went to college, public college, but they all went to the city and went to and studied on that money. But since then, the, the price has just uh, continued plummeting and it's not financially viable, really, to grow coffee. Mm-hmm. So most people in my hometown ripped out the coffee and they grew, I was going to say they grew cows, they just put cows in, mm-hmm. or they grew, you know, plantains. Um, and those who continued with it, you know, they just really love the bean. They love the mm-hmm. bean. They love the process. They love the culture that comes around the bean. You know, it's a family you know, it's kind of like a family legacy in some way because we're families that have always been involved some way with the culture surrounding coffee. And so people like my sister love love coffee and, uh, and they want to make it work. But it's very expensive to produce coffee because it's very labor intensive. Mm-hmm. My sister probably goes through six or seven different selection processes to get to the final bean and all of those are done by hand. Mm. So it's, it's um, no, it's really hard. Uh, it's, it's hard to live off of coffee. And I think people are trying to, to get ways around the international market and sell it straight to the consumer, which is where the money is really. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't actually drank coffee in quite a few years due to, you know, personal and, and health reasons, but um, you know, at least when I go to grocery stores here in the States, especially the more like specialty grocery stores that try to have more of a social justice focus, the coffee there will be on the one hand, really expensive, but also touted as like, this is fair trade. And this Mm -hmm. is like in in an attempt to make that a more equitable economic situation for the, the producers. So and I, I'm not an expert in economics by any means, but I, I'm wondering, you know, if you have any sense of if that, if I as a consumer in the United States go to a grocery store and I see this $11 a pound for a pound of fair trade coffee from, from Colombia, like, is that, do you know if that is from this production chain where they're trying to sell directly to the consumer so that, you know, the farmers get more money? Like, do you you have any sense of if that's true or not? You know, I would say, 
I can't say in every case, but in, I would say in a lot of cases it's not. Mm. Um, here in Sonora, where I live in Mexico, the, this is a basic, it's strange because we're a desert, but they export, the, the main export is fruits and vegetables. Mm. And um, most of the money that comes into the state actually comes from fruits and vegetables sold to the U.S., and, you know, I, because I've been in some of these places where the workers work, mm-hmm. I've seen how some of these products are labeled fair trade, but they don't really mean anything for the worker. Mm-hmm. I mean, or they mean so little, it's silly. You know, it ends mm-hmm. up being a greater gain for whoever put the label than for the worker itself. And so mm-hmm. it's hard. I mean, if you don't know where it's coming from and who it's really, who's really producing it, it's, I would say it's difficult. Yeah, it's it's certainly a challenge. There there's so much with labeling food products here in the US where they can kind of put certain things on labels that are buzzwords, but because there's no there's no true standard for a lot of things and companies can, you know, they can kind of use these terms on their labels on their labeling to make a product seem something that it isn't like whether it's um you know whether it's organic or um some of these other terms and it's like it's constantly it's a constant thing and it's just so difficult there's that refrain that there is no ethical consumption under capitalism and that's I mean that that's true um but on the one hand it's great I guess to kind of be in a world where we can have a little bit more transparency around, at least around understanding these processes. Um, what you shared about seeing the workers on the farms and, and their conditions actually reminded me of um, so, uh, several years back at uh, General Synod in the UCC, one of the resolutions that we considered, and I actually happened to be on the committee for this resolution, was a boycott of Wendy's, which was rooted in the fact that they were not sourcing their tomatoes ethically. Mm. And um, I remember in, and they were like giving us an educational intensive and kind of giving us, you know, the context around how this came about. And one of the plot lines of the story, if you will, was that instead of entering the um, I'm, I'm forgetting what it's called, but it's like, it's like a penny per pound sort of agreement that, uh, different companies can can buy into, and most fast food companies in the U.S., like uh, like McDonald's, and I think even Taco Bell and Walmart and Sam's Club, and all these kind of big companies that we have here, bought into this sort of fair trade thing. And Wendy's has been this holdout, and um, instead of going into that program, what they did instead was they started sourcing their tomatoes from farms in Mexico because of like fewer regulations and and things like that. And so it's just, it's such a big beast, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, no regulations. I wouldn't say fewer. It's, it's shocking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The working conditions of people here that the agricultural fields vary by company, but there is, uh, yeah, there it is. Some of this stuff is frightening. Everything from kids being, uh, trafficked to work on the fields to being and becoming addicted to meth. Mm-hmm. The, the quantity of pesticides and 
chemicals are exposed to. I mean, what you would just, yeah, it's really, it's shocking. And because these states are governed by two or three families that govern the land, the agricultural fields, the, the money that's coming into the state and the political arena, it's very hard for, for anything to change because there's the same three families that basically have a monopoly of the finances, the power and the land in the state. And mm -hmm. so it's, yeah, it's, it's scary. Uh, Colombia strikes me as a lot, takes a lot more seriously the rights of workers than Mexico does. In Mexico, mm -hmm. I see stuff that just blows my mind every day, everywhere on the street. I mean, it's just like, it, it really shocks me. It never, it should stop shocking me because I've been here for years, but it just doesn't mm -hmm. stop shocking me. <laughs> right. Right. Well, how do you relate to or experience this term Latinx, especially as somebody who is in Latin America, um, where identifying terms, you know, aren't certainly, they're, they're not always the same as what we use in the U.S., but because of the internet and social media, like terms and language kind of spreads globally. I, I'm really curious about how you connect to or maybe don't connect to this term? Hmm. So I'm not that familiar with the, with Latinx. What is Latinx to you? So to me, um, it is a term to be more inclusive of non-binary genders. So, so somebody who is gender fluid or gender non-conforming and who has this heritage, rather than being forced to choose to say that they are Latino or that they are Latina, uh, Latinx, or, you know, possibly Latine, those are more uh, gender neutral identifiers that, that they can use. And it's also, I think, an attempt to try to find a gender neutral way to refer to the community of of people particularly in the diaspora i'm i'm not sure how much this really um spreads to those who are still in latin america so that that's kind of my quick um mm. sense of of the term yeah i would say that because i'm in some ways very isolated from media i'm not very familiar with you know the social media i don't You know, I don't have really any social media aside from like the YouTube. And I, so I've been really, uh, in more recent months, I've kind of become more familiar with, with all of this conversations around gender and language. But mm -hmm. I've been honestly really just kind of in a bubble here, I think maybe because of the things that are going on here. It's just, I, yeah, I haven't, mm -hmm. it's not that I'm that familiar I can say though that I'm it makes me makes me happy, you know, that mm -hmm. we're thinking about different ways and finding different ways people can express who they are because mm -hmm. you know, everybody should be able to express who they are and be who they are and who they feel they are. And so having language that's wider and broader and allows for that, I think is a step forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you say that you know, you are kind of in, in this bubble and haven't had a lot of exposure to the, this conversation. I think that's actually a really important perspective to 
have on on the show. And it's why I usually like to ask this question, because there is a lot of nuance with this conversation and, and using this term. And I think it also points to the fact that it it's very it's very much a US term. I think it there are kind of nebulous origins about where the term actually came from and when it first started cropping up, but it's my understanding and I think most people's understanding that it originated within queer Latino communities. Um, and so it's not like, cause there, there is a narrative out there that Latinx is, was invented by a bunch of white progressives that are trying to tell Latinos how to identify. And I think that that is a false narrative. That's not how I've seen it used. And that's not my understanding of where this language comes from. Mm. I think at the same time, though, people might be thinking that like somebody who is a, a man who is Latino, you know, people might think that this term Latinx is trying to get you to call that individual man a Latinx when he is a Latino. And I, I don't think it's meant necessarily as an individual identifier for mm -hmm. someone like uh, unless, you know, they are gender nonconforming and that's the term that they want to be called for themselves. But, you know, if somebody is like, hey, I am Latino, then I'm not going to call that person or refer to that person individually as Latinx. I'm going to call them what it is that they want to be called. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I do I do think that this kind of language, it is trying to find names for the collective community um, mm -hmm. and how we can how we cannot because with, you know, with Spanish being a gendered language, you know, if there's one man in a room of 100 women, then we have to use the masculine form of, you know, of the of the nouns which is how the grammar rules go. And there, there's been a lot of conversation around, at least when it comes to these terms that we use to identify and talk about people, you know, should we really be, be doing that? And as somebody who, I, I didn't grow up speaking Spanish, I'm still not fluent. And so, you know, it, it doesn't feel like a conversation that I can really put too much, you know, of my own emphasis on, but that is, certainly a piece of, of the conversation around this sort of shifting language. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, in general, I think Spanish is a great language to speak in, in collective. And so broadening the language of the collective is always a way of integrating people into something that's greater than themselves, you know, and mm -hmm. we don't exist we don't, we can't be human if we're not in relationship with the other and mm -hmm. with the collective. And so, you know, I think that's, that's cool. I mean, to have a term that describes not just the individual, but a, but a community and how a community identifies and feels. And that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because actually just, just yesterday I was seeing on Twitter that there was a Gallup poll done here, I guess, I guess among um, the Latino population in the U.S., and it was asking about what term you use to identify. And out of all of the the terms, Latinx only had like four percent mm. of the of the respondents saying that they use this term. And so, because it's Twitter and social media, I've seen 
you know, people take that to be like to, to try to further invalidate um, using this language, which, uh, you know, is is annoying. But mm. at the same time, I I, I do try to because when when it's other Latinx people or, or Latinos who are saying, like, I don't jive with this term, I don't I don't like it. It You know, I, I try to, you know, try to understand where they're coming from because it it's more of a, an intercommunity thing. But when I hear it from white people or, or non-Latinx people who are like, don't say Latina, I'm like, you, this is not your conversation to have. Yeah. Um, this is, this is like a, you know, among, amongst our own, you know, our own people trying to have these conversations and, and weigh in all, all these different factors. And I think one concern about that I hear from folks who, you know, aren't sure about this term is like, well, it it's it's like English colonizing Spanish. And, you know, I I think there's, you know, several different aspects to that argument. But I, I, I can, given the imperial nature of the United States uh, to, today in these times that we live in, I can see how folks would be uncomfortable with that, even though I think that argument is coming from a misunderstanding of where where the term came from just because of the, the relationship that the US has with so many countries in Latin America I mean from the uh, from the neo-colonial relationship that it has with Puerto Rico um, to the you know some of the the things that it has done that the US has done in Central and South America um, in you know in, in decades past and and today. So I, I think that I can, when I think about it in a broader sense, I, I can understand how people struggle with it. And I think that, um, I think that it's good to, to struggle with it, but also to try to move towards something that is more expanded, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I don't understand why there would be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm not, I guess I'm not versed enough with the debate, but I don't see where the issue is. I mean, like, you know, there can be Latinas, there can be Latinos, there can be Latinx, there can be Latines. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that, at the end of the day, that's kind of where I put it to. But also when I just, I just go around and I, and I see, I see people have some pretty strong reactions to, to it, just like hating that this term even exists. And, you know, 99% of it, or, you know, 90% of it, I'm just like, okay, you know, you're, you're just, you're just angry, and you're not going to want to understand. But then, you know, I try to like, employ my empathy or, or curiosity to understand where other people are coming from. And I, I try to like, piece together, you know, what what might be feeding into that, um, that very averse reaction, you know? Mm. Hmm. Well, I think that any name that has an X refers to like a super superhero. <laughs> so I feel like it's like Latin superheroes. And that is very, very true of so many people. <laughs> <laughs> So what is your journey in terms of your spirituality and religion? What were some of the the beliefs or maybe the institutions that shaped you as a young person? And how has that journey changed for you over time? Yeah. So I would say that most shaped me as a child was the absence of any institution. Um, and strangely enough, both 
my dad and my mom were super like non-religious. Um, I think the reason on my dad's side is because my dad's family comes from Jews that were expelled um, by the Catholics. And mm. so the, the, the Jewish uh, tradition in my dad's family is very evident up to my great grandmother's generation. Um, and it's not very evident in my grandma, and it's definitely not, you know, my dad didn't grow up Jewish, but my grandma must have been very averse to the Catholic Church. And so as a woman in a small town, of course, you had to go to church because mm -hmm. el padrecito is like God, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but she was never excited about the church too much. And um, my dad was, was not a religious person. And my mom comes from a Polish family. Um, you know, my dad's family are like good, culturally Catholic, you know, but very hardworking, very united, loving family. And my mom's family, my mom says they would just drink and smoke and swear. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and my mom's family is very dysfunctional. And my mom never went to church as a kid. And so my parents, we grew up in a, a totally non-religious household. And when I I left Colombia when I was about 15. My mom became tired of, of the war. Um, the kidnappings were, there were, I mean, everybody had a family member that had been kidnapped, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think my mom was just tired of Colombia. And so she moved us back to the U.S. I finished high school, which I hated. And I mm -hmm. went to college on the south side of Chicago. Uh, I went to the University of Illinois and lived on 18th Street, which is a historically... Mexican neighborhood. I think before being Mexican was a Polish neighborhood, but it was a really beautiful, vibrant Mexican neighborhood when I moved uh, onto 18th Street. And some of my friends were Christian. Uh, and my first boyfriend was like from a very Christian family. And I was kind of snooty and be like, I really... If there's anything lame, it's like a white Christian guy. I was like, it was terrible. I was just thought it was the worst thing in the world. And so Lucita's like, oh, yeah, you think Christian boy is a bad idea? Here you go. Uh, and and um, so, you know, I was, I, was very, I, was, I was 18 and I was like really obsessed with him. But anyway, um, and a lot of these, my friends were very kind, you know, and they went to church. Of course, they tried to kind of get me to go to church and they'd be like, Jesus is your friend. And I was like, that's lame. Why do you mean Jesus is your friend? Jesus died 2000 years ago. He doesn't speak English. He was Jewish. I, mean, I just thought the whole thing was silly. Um, and so I was not into it at all. But the year I graduated college, I was you know, I broke up with this boyfriend. I had just like a really, was just very torn apart. And I was very, um, kind of like an opening happened in my life, I guess. You know, I think God just found a way to get in. And I was suddenly struck, struck by, by something, you know, I would say the, the first step was this hunger to, to, to become closer to God, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I had a, I remember I had a dream where for some strange reason, Christ was in my dream. Of course, I couldn't see anything. All I could hear was a man's voice that said, everything is going to change. And I found it terrifying. And I found him terrifying. And I just, I thought it was the worst thing in the world. 
Um, but, you know, something just grabbed me. It grabbed me and I started searching, basically. I mean, I finished college and I moved to Portland. I was trying to get as far away from Chicago as I could. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just, I remember having those first years having a really kind of tender seeking of this figure of God, father, mother, you know, and, uh, and I would peek into Christian churches. Uh, I lived a year, yeah, in Portland and I peeked into like, um, non-denomination Christian church, met some nice people there. I then went to New York city and attended a Presbyterian church on the North side of the city, almost like in Harlem. And, you know, I, you know, I liked them, but I never really felt necessarily at home. I don't, I, yeah, I just, I didn't really feel at home in any of these churches, but I, I enjoyed going. And I would say that those first years, you know, I would divide kind of like the spiritual journey for me in three parts, uh, which would, I guess you could say that they're the, like father, mother, son, and Holy Spirit, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um but these first years for me, I feel like there were this seeking of the father, mother. And, you know, I think just once God grabs you, he, he she is not letting go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, it reminds me, I was just thinking about this a second ago. There was yesterday, I think I was reading a quote by Teresa of Avila. Mm-hmm. And she says, well, Jesus, if this is how you treat your friends. It's no wonder you don't have a lot of friends. <laughs> and referring to the fact that it's, it, God will let you, won't let you go, but Jesus is a tough pill to swallow. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, and I think that after I was seeking after God, these maybe one, two, three, around my third year of, you know, this reading the Old Testament, I think I had a sensation that Christ was part of this journey and I, and there was this growing discomfort, you know, just like this sense that I was, that I was running from someone or something, you know, and this increasing tension in my own self about this figure of Christ. What is it? Who is it? What does it want from me? You know, I was living in Chile at the time in the middle of the student revolutions of the 2010, 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, you know, I remember having the sense of like, you know, there's those moments of life where you, there's this growing tension in your heart and you know, something is about to break and you know, you're about to step into a new stage of your life and you're just holding back because you don't want to go there or you don't know where you're, you're going to end up. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that really brought me into like a second stage of, I would say of my faith as I organized it in my own mind where I, I left Latin America. I mean, I was living in Chile. I was playing music. I ended up going back home to Chicago. My parents were living in a suburb of Chicago, like lamest place on earth. Uh, And I just stopped uh, I, you know, I just felt like, like I was running in the wrong direction, like something, something was out of place. And I, I went home and I just 
sat for eight months. I mean, I had a part-time job, but mostly spiritually, I, I just sat with this tension of like, what is it and who is this Christ? And why do I feel like it's just like, you know, grabbing at me? Um, and that, you know, those were some very interesting eight months. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that, you know, that makes sense up to there in this story. <laughs> Yeah, it it does. I I think, you know, I think everybody who takes their faith or spirituality with any sort of seriousness has a winding journey that ends up being more expansive than maybe the initial forms of it that we were exposed to. Mm. Um, And I think, I think that, well, first of all, I, I think that it's a good thing to go through those types of journeys. I, I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure there are people who just never deal with faith and spirituality and they go through life and it's just not a a thing for them. And it's very hard for me to imagine an existence of not going through those shifts and, and changes and and i think especially well you know for for me i grew up with more of a structured sense of religion and i'm now in a place where it's more expanded and and deeper mm-hmm. whereas you know from from what you said you didn't have you didn't necessarily have that strict of a of a structure but you kind of dipped into these different structures throughout and you know, maybe you were, you were at a point in your life where the bad parts, the toxic parts maybe of, of those structures couldn't really quite get to you, but you, but you're still like moving forward. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I wasn't at that, when I, when I first started seeking, you know, I would say God, I wasn't very critical of the church. You know, I I think I was just having this kind of mystical, personal experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so the sort of questioning uh, and frustration is something that's come much later for me. You know, I was, you know, and since I had the freedom of never being exposed to the church as a child, I didn't Mm -hmm. grow up with these ideas of like, yeah, I didn't grow up with a lot of the ideas that people that have been hurt by the church grew up with, and so you know, the church was a it was a it was a it was a nice, as you would say, it was a structured space, and it's it was a nice place to be with other people, and I think that was just about it for me. And um, you know, the, at some point, you know, and I I think that kind of. God, if you are willing and open, you know, to the spiritual journey, you know, God dips in at different stages uh, and in different ways. So everybody mm-hmm. has a, a very different journey. You know, f- for me, I, I think there, the, the transitions between for one stage to the other have been very, very strong or I've been very conscious of them maybe because, mm-hmm. because it's something that that's a big part of my life. And so when I, after, you know, after sitting in Chicago for about seven, eight months, I think there was a clarity in my heart that if I wanted to understand who Christ was, I was going to have to let go 
and that I would have no idea who Christ was unless I was willing to serve. Hmm. And there, there, you know, for me, there was just a sense that it was just so absolutely clear, you know, and I think this, there is this experience of a death that's so intense and, and feels so real. And I have to say that I, that I felt it because I, you know, I had been developing an identity. You know, I, I went to school and studied sociology, but I had been developing an identity around like writing music. I really wanted to make kind of like a career out of it at that point in my life. And I've been kind of, you know, working toward that. And then, you know, I felt like it came to a point where God was like, you got to let go of everything, mm. everything, mm. if you want to know, if you want to understand, you know? And so, at, you know, the letting, for me, any process of death, the process unto death is difficult. Death is not, you know? You, mm -hmm. um, once you let go, it's the most liberating experience in the world. But the working up to that was very painful because I was, letting go of the identity I had created in some ways. Mm. And um, once I got to the point where I said, you know what? Okay. You know, I was just like, I'm here, God. Do with me whatever you want. I don't care no more. I'm ready. Once <laughs> I got to that point where I was just like, I, you know, there is a sense of abounding peace and joy, you know, this incredible garden of riches as they would say of the gospel of john where it was just like wow life is so expansive life is so immense life is so beautiful and uh I, you know the irony of it is, is i was in chicago in a suburb of chicago in the most boring place of earth and uh you know i i remember having this these eight months uh, and this stage of just like letting go of everything and being like, what do you want? Where do you want me to go? You know? And so at that point I discerned that I would move to the border because I had been on the border in 2009, traveled through Mexico with migrants, volunteered on the border. And I was just like, you know what? I remember really feeling the presence of God and I, I'm happy to serve in whatever way they need me. And I was, you know, I called the Kino Border Initiative in those years. And I said, you know, like, uh, I can speak English and Spanish and I'm available. And they said, we need somebody to serve food and make phone calls. And I was like, I am so qualified. <laughs> yeah, I was a terrible waitress. But anyway, um, and living, you know, moving to the border, I would say opens up this like second stage of, for me in my own faith journey where, where you feel so, so painfully and so powerful, the sense of impotence that God must feel if God is real, which I hope he, she is. Mm -hmm. uh, this is like this sense of just rage and sadness and I guess for me, that's what Christ is. You know, Christ is like that, that place where you feel the rage of the world, the sadness, like the, the sense of impotence of like, why is this happening? There's no reason for this to be happening. There's no reason for this man to have been ripped out of his family overnight, sent over the border and told that he will never see his kids again. You know, there's mm -hmm. no reason for this mother to come and pick up a, her dying son that 
they just found in the middle of the desert. There's like no reason for this to be happening. And so being on the border, I think was for me, it was like a way to, to taste that side, you know, of God or, or that, which is Christ to me, which is this, this place where you're, you're in service and you're in pain. Hmm. Um, and in the, I mean, despite the, the, the anger and the sadness, it, it was also in many ways, very joyful. You know, um, I, I worked with amazing nuns that were super cool and took good care of me. And, uh, and, you know, I think that the funny thing is that when I moved to the border, you know, I had been living in New York, I had been living in Buenos Aires, Santiago de Chile. And in all of these places, I was like playing music, getting acquainted with the cultural scene. And so when I decided to go to Nogales, I was like, bah, my music life is over. It's mm -hmm. done. It's done forever. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as soon as I got to Nogales, you know, I took my cuatro because I take it everywhere and it's my best friend, my little instrument. But once I got to Nogales and I started writing songs, um, the nuns were like, this is amazing. We got to go on tour. <laughs> going like, on tour with that, the nuns i love that god has a sense of humor the nuns were you know they were my the best tour managers ever they took me everywhere took me to the radio took me to the churches took me to the colleges you know and i was never i don't i think few times in my life i've been as active musically as i was in novales you know wow. i <laughs> i think it's kind of I, i always think it's kind of funny you know you know, if God exists, definitely has a sense of humor about life. <laughs> yeah. And I think that reminds me about, because I've been thinking, um, I've been thinking and reading through Deuteronomy and Exodus and Genesis. And, and it, these days I've been thinking a lot about the Abraham story. And I think it's just such an uncomfortable story, you know, the idea of, Abraham binding his son, Isaac. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Jews and Christians don't, mostly we don't know what to do about that because of course God doesn't want us to kill our children, mm -hmm. you know? And I think that in some ways, if you, you know, if you take Isaac out of the story as a child and replace him as this desire that Abraham has, you know, to be the father of a great nation, right? Because mm -hmm. Isaac is the way that he's going to become the father of a great nation. So if you replace the child with his own desire, I think what Abraham is really struggling with is how our desires, which are good and God puts in our hearts, can become so big that they become bigger than our relationship with God. And then they enslave us, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think for me at least, you know, I had become in some ways kind of a slave to this identity around music also, you know, mm -hmm. and who am I, you know, well, I, I'm defined in relationship to this thing I do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, moving to Nogales and letting it go was just being like, you know what? No, I'm not. You know, it's something I do. I love it. I, you know, I, I think I'll keep writing songs the rest of my life. Um, but it's not who I am. You know, I, I'm just God's daughter and I like that. <laughs> and that's a lot more liberating uh, than being bound to, to an identity based on your profession that you always have to be better at. Mm. 
So I think, you know, for me, yeah, you know, the border was, was such an enriching place. And now, at least in my faith, you know, I'm, I left the border. I think all institutions, they, they help you grow and then they kind of strangle you, you know, because mm. <laughs> you naturally grow and they don't, mm -hmm. uh, they generally stay the same size. And so sooner or later, you know, you, you got to leave. And so I left, I left the border and didn't really know where to go. I've never known where to go. <laughs> <laughs> I never had a grand, grand plan, uh, but I, you know, I left the border and I lived in Guatemala in the mountains with uh, some friends that are indigenous and they uh, work in agriculture there and they invited me. So I moved there for a while and then I ended up settling in Hermosillo. Uh, I'm in the capital of the state, Sonora, bordering Arizona, uh, mm -hmm. an immense and very striking desert. And, um, you know, I think that this, this stage... For me, at least at this stage of the journey, there is this experience or this hungering for the, for what I would call the experience of the Holy Spirit, which is this place of community, you know, mm -hmm. which I, you know, I think it's the natural culmination of the journey. You know, you go kind of through the father, mother, son, and Holy Spirit. And, you know, the Holy Spirit really is a, is how, for me, how do I build community here? You know, mm. uh, how do I become part of a community? What are the rituals that will hold this community together, this home, my neighbors? And it's really a mystery to me. Uh, I have a sense that that there is, you know, an emerging stage. I don't, I don't really know exactly where it will take me. Mm -hmm. um, but I have a sense that it's, you know, it's this call to to come together with others and to work and then also to take the risks and responsibilities and the discernment that that implies. Because when you are, you know, for me in Nogales, it was easy. It's like, I do whatever the nuns tell me. You know, it was fun. <laughs> I didn't have to make a lot of decisions. Mm -hmm. But, you know, building community requires people making decisions about a lot of things and discerning a lot of things and i think you know god is you know sometimes i wish i'd be like god could you just tell me could you just send me a post-it note i feel like right. we all just want god to send us a post-it note like you know you're doing yeah. a great job do this next and, and god does it you know i think god's just like you know you've been in school a long time i've taken good care of you now you decide mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, I mean, at this stage uh, of my life, I'm I'm incredibly fortunate to have been gifted this home I live in. I, I live in a big old home in the downtown, and we have a space to receive families that are asking for refugee status in Mexico. And mm -hmm. we have a space downstairs that we're kind of developing into a community kind of garden, library. And so, you know, coming and, and moving here is really about living in the place I'm in, you know, the border is so much about what's going on in DC, what's going on in border control, what's going on, you know, in the lawmakers here. It's just like, what's going on in the life of my neighbor. Mm. 
Uh, and this is, this is, you know, the certainty that this is the only place out of which I can create any meaningful change is just where I am, like mm. right here physically with the people that surround me. Yeah. So that's what we're, you know, that's kind of, I guess that's, that's the, that's the, the spirit journey <laughs> so far. Yeah. And what, what a journey I I, well, I really like your framework of how you've split it up into this Trinitarian cycle. Um, I think that's really, really neat. And I also, you know, when you were talking about how you built your whole identity around doing music, um, I, I'm an author, so I, I get like being a creative person and feeling that that is your soul's purpose to be creating this work and putting this work out into the world. And when you shared about how you had this sense that you became enslaved to that identity, or you were, you were putting so much more stock into that than, um, than into your relationship with God, it reminded me exactly of this experience that I had when I was 16. Uh, I was in an exchange program at my high school, um, where we went to China for two months over a summer. And so that was the longest time that I've ever been away from home up to that point was this trip to, to China. And a lot of things happened there. But one of the things that happened there was that I had like a spiritual crisis and, and sort of a, a spiritual breakdown around, be, be around this, like my sense of, um, of being a, a writer and like this path that I had, I had planned out my whole life. I was 16. I would like had this whole entire plan to be like a, just do books and just write books and just be an author. And that was going to be my entire, you know, thing. I wasn't planning on doing anything else. That was the only thing that, that it was going to be. And now a lot of that spiritual crisis, I think also stems from some, uh, some toxic theology that I had at that point in my life that I didn't, recognize as toxic because I was deep in it. But I do think there is something to be said, though, even outside of that, of putting your entire well-being into the thing that you do, because the thing that you do can change or it could be taken away from you. And then like, what are you left with at that point? And I think that's a, a danger that people can run into where, you know, you, and, and we all experience that even if we do sort of plan for it or, or try to build our identity outside of one specific thing. But yeah, I, I think especially when it comes to the arts and creative pursuits, it's so, it's so tricky to strike that balance because the creative arts are also our passions and we feel in our soul, like the, the, drive to pursue our passions and to put stuff out in, into the world. And I also did reach a point where I was like, okay, I can't even write books anymore. Like I can't, I guess I can't do this. I have to completely give it all up. And then, you know, God was like, no, you're just going to have a completely, you know, a deeper framework for how you're doing your fiction. And that has 
grown and shifted and, and continues to be true in the work that I that I do today. Mm. So even if it seems like, you know, you're in that sort of creative crisis where you have to give up this passion of, of your soul, God doesn't even work in that way either. God just transforms that um, into something different. Yeah, and I think that, you know, God, you know, God puts obviously the, the talents, I mean, each one of us has like specific gifts, you know, there's mm -hmm. no, there's no way around that, you know, and what cruel God, you know, how could God be so cruel to give us a gift and not expect us to use it to its full potential, you know, mm -hmm. I think for me, the only way for me to understand how that gift would be useful to the world was was to confront to confront and to and to have this experience you know for me i think that if i without that without that breaking i wouldn't have understand how that was actually going to serve others you know mm -hmm. in my life mm -hmm. um because once i once i had this experience i moved to the border and i kept writing but, you know, as you say, you had, a, you know, a kind of a change. I wasn't writing about my life anymore, which I do sometimes. But, mm -hmm. you know, I was writing about the lives of others that in some way needed to be consoled, I found. Needed mm -hmm. to be encouraged through song. And so it, it made me discover what that which I was gifted was with was for. And I think mm -hmm. that made all the difference for me because, because I, you know, sometimes for me, at least I'm not so, I'm like, oh, my feelings, eh. mm -hmm. you know, I'm not always so sure I want to share them or that, you know, that they're that interesting, but, but I'm so convinced that the lives of others are, you know, mm -hmm. I'm so passionate about uh, the lives and the pain and the stories of others. And so, yeah, I think, as you say, you know, it, in the end, God didn't, take it away, just tweaked it. Right, right. Well, that's a great segue um, because, well, first of all, the reason why I found out about you and, you know, invited you on the podcast is because you created a song for um, UCC's General Synod, which happened uh, back in July. And so I want to get into all of the work that you're doing now, whether it's uh, it's music or advocacy things, I, I'd love to hear about all of that. Yeah, so, I, you know, I live in Hermosillo. Hermosillo is geographically three hours south of the U.S.-Mexico border. We, and, you know, as you know, so many people are coming through these lands uh, to mm -hmm. get to the border. And so in 2019, under the Trump administration, Mexico deployed the National Guard to do immigration enforcement. And what that caused was like a huge increase in immigration detentions. We have a detention center here, uh, which had maximum occupancy of 60 people. And we, I mean, I saw up to almost 200 people detained at a time mm -hmm. in this space. And so many people were detained, people from all parts of the earth, children, women, men. And what that caused is that a lot of people asked for refugee status in Mexico. You know, most of these people were going to ask for refugee status in the U.S., but once they were detained by Mexico, the only way to get out of detention was to ask for refugee status here. And so, you know, I had this, 
this kind of boom of refugee and asylum petitions in Mexico. And that prompted me to open the space in the house, you know, because they, you know, basically the, the, how it works is that you get detained or back in 2019, each year it's changing, but in mm-hmm. 2019, you, know, you get detained, you ask for a refugee status, you wait for about a month in detention. And once the, the area of government notifies you via immigration that your refugee application has been accepted, that doesn't mean approved. It just means that they've gotten your paperwork. Then they, mm-hmm. uh, the jail, the immigration jail opens the door and says, well, okay, out you go. Show up every week to sign for your immigration papers. And so m- most of the people that are, have been detained here in Hermosillo have never been in the city. They've been brought from different parts in the state in operations that immigration enforcement does. And um, sometimes they have not a penny on them, not a cell phone. And one moment, you know, they're detained immigration and the next they're out the door in a city Mm. that they don't know uh, where there are no shelters. And so that prompted me to open the house uh, because I was doing immigration visits and You know, we had a bunch of people living here at the end of 2019. And so since then, I would say since 2019 to now, most of my work around like accompaniment has been accompanying refugees that are asking for status in Mexico, you know, helping them with their paperwork, you know, accompanying the families here to get their kids in school, helping get work and keep you know, continue on the legal battle that that implies. And from that experience in the fall of 2009, I had some songs that I had written in those days, in those months, and I decided to record them um, this year for International Refugee Day, which is June 20th. So I recorded those songs, released them, and I wrote a story, which I love. I hope you, you read it. I think mm-hmm. it's such a good story. Um, I wrote it with Nydeline. Nydeline is, she arrived at the house when she was nine. Oh, she's grown now. She arrived here mm-hmm. when she was nine. And through circumstance, basically her, her dad and me ended up being here. And I was taking care of her through the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And Nydeline and I, who, she's originally from Guatemala left her family as a refugee, but she doesn't really know she's a refugee. She wasn't explained, you know, what happened. Mm-hmm. But we started talking about her journey and how she saw her leaving Guatemala, you know, crossing Mexico, being detained by immigration, being translated, you know, detained all through the eyes of a nine-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, we, you know, we, we, we spent most of the pandemic talking and me listening to her and recording her And kind of piecing together her journey and her experience through her eyes. And uh, it's a, I, you know, I love Nydeline's story. I read it to her parents recently. We all read it together and they were, you know, I, I think it's just, uh, it's touching to them. Uh, because in, in one side, she has very, very poignant and uh She has a lot, she's a very poignant experiences that reveal with a lot of clarity the injustices that people are mm-hmm. happening, you know, here. But on the other side, she's a child that just loves animals. So mm-hmm. most of her story revolves around the animals she finds along the way. Mm-hmm. 
which, you know, I just, I don't know. I love it because she's a lot of fun and uh, it has a little bit of both. It has this kind of innocence of a nine-year-old that sees the the world through the animals she meets, but she mm-hmm. also has this very profound and very painful situations that she went through in detention. Um, yeah. And so that work is, is released and uh, you know, right now, Mm. well the pandemic has really kind of slowed down I think most work as far as shows and that but my Mm -hmm. my hope is that you know the work helps inform helps open other people's hearts to what's going on here in Latin America and um, my sense is that Mexico will become the next recipient basically of the refugees that the, the U.S. is not going to receive, especially Guatemalans. And mm-hmm. so how do we, as, how does Mexico start to think of itself as a land that is going to become el receptor, you know, mm-hmm. the home to the to many new waves of refugees? And how do we create a culture where they are welcome, you know, because the fastest thing that happens is that people reproduce here what they reproduce in the U.S. You know, these mm-hmm. all these Guatemalans, oh, they're bad. Oh, the Hondurans, oh, they come and take our jobs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think Mexico can do better at that. You know, it's, mm-hmm. people are generally so kind. You know, it's just that eh, sometimes, I don't know, I, I, you know, it's the media doesn't help, you know, how it talks about all of this, but yeah. You know, I think that it seems to me that music can help to open people's eyes and hearts to what's going on. And so, you know, I'm going to keep looking for ways and avenues to share the work and keep talking about it here. Mm-hmm. Well, where can people find this this music that you've released? So the latest record uh, and most of the records are... Not most of them. Okay, three of the records are in digital distribution. So if they look for La Muna in Spotify, I think they should get the record Corazón Norte, which was born on the border and has 12 songs and 10 interviews, some of them overdubbed. And it has, yeah, and it has this latest record, which is called Estoy Pidiendo Refugio. I am in search of refuge. So I think if they 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 look for Spotify and that they should find it. It's on YouTube and it's on my personal website corazonnorte.com. I try and keep the records a bit more of the explanation behind them, the lyrics in both languages, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of thing. So I think probably if they go to yeah YouTube or my own personal website, they can find it and. They can also download any of it through Bandcamp, site for independent musicians. I think mm-hmm. all the records are on Bandcamp and all of them can be downloaded. People can choose to donate or not for the download. And that way you don't have to get all those nasty commercials on YouTube, which I'm so fed up with. Well, that is wonderful. And so I'm wondering if uh, you have a song that you would like to uh, share for us. Yeah. How out of tune am I? I don't have my guitar tuner on me. So as long as it's in tune with itself, it's fine. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm thinking I'm going to sing something in English that I, that, that 
is just warmed my heart and I like. Cool. Here it goes. And I don't want nothing at all All I want Is just a bit of your love I ain't got nothing at no. all And I don't want nothing at all was awesome uh that was so so beautiful and you know the words it reminds me thematically of the the song that you did make for um for general synod the rooted in your love song just you know i couldn't help but uh sort of make that connection there so yeah that was that was great thank you so much Oh, it's my pleasure, Taylor. And, you know, it seems like the world is just falling apart and it keeps falling apart. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, we just, we just need more of like that certainty of, of that quiet silence of, of knowing, of sensing, of resting in, in God. You know, mm-hmm. it's okay. You know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, my, I, my listeners who maybe didn't go to general synod as of this recording, I, I'm not sure if the 
worship videos are on the UCC's YouTube channel yet, but I'm, I'm told that the UCC is somehow going to make the music available in some way, shape, or form. And so I'm going to encourage listeners to uh, to please check out Rooted in Your Love and, and all the other music too, because it really, you know, it really does create that sort of that sense of that calm grounding um, mm-hmm. that I found very, you know, very meaningful when I experienced it at, at Synod. And then, you know, this song that you just shared kind of brought me back to that place a little bit. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, gosh, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation and, and experience. Just thank you again for taking the time to come on the, the podcast and to just share all of your work and, and your experiences. Uh, this was fantastic. Oh, it's my, my pleasure, Taylor. And thank you to uh, Latinx for having me on. And yeah, yeah, I'm so happy I could I could be here with you. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.